Y'all can have a seat as we transition now into our message. Want to uh, begin by just introducing myself to those of you who I've yet to meet. My name is Ryan. I have the privilege and the blessing of serving as the lead pastor here at Awaken. And this morning, I have the blessing of uh, kicking off this brand new sermon series that we are doing in the book of Malachi. Now, I'm guessing that y'all fall probably into one of two camps when it comes to the book of Malachi. You probably either are wondering who is Malachi because you've never heard of this book before, or you're wondering why Malachi because you are familiar with it. You're wondering what does this Old Testament prophet have to do with us here today? Well, the good news for you is that I'm going to do my best to uh, answer those questions for you here this morning. And in doing so, my hope honestly is that, if I can pull up my message here, uh, is that we will be able to uh, actually get you to ask some bigger and some deeper questions here this morning. Because reality is, there's such great power in questions. I don't know if you've noticed this before, right? The, the rightly timed, rightly worded question has the ability, really an unmatched ability to challenge us and to convict us and to compel us even to change who we are. Right? It has this power that really no other form of communication really has. Let me explain to you a little bit of what I mean. If you think back to some of your favorite movies over the last few decades, you'll realize that most of them, they have this scene. It's often at the, the climax of the movie, right? When the tension is at its highest, you'll see the, the main character either being asked or asking a question. Right? And the, when the writers do this really well, what the, the question does is it'll actually like reach through the screen and it'll kind of grab a hold of you and it'll draw you in. Have any of you experienced this in a movie you've seen recently? Okay, I've got a really good example in case you haven't. It comes from the movie Gladiator. Any Gladiator fans in here? We've got some. I know it's a little bit older one, but man, it is such a classic. And even if you haven't seen it before, chances are you're going to know what I'm getting towards here. But let me set up the scene for you here. In Gladiator, uh, this is Russell Crowe's character, Maximus Decimus Meridius, right? He is a, a gladiator that fights in the Colosseum. And in this one scene, right, he's taken into the Colosseum and he's led out of this little cage or cart thing. And, and it's like him against like eight guys, right? And all he's got is a sword. Well, I'm going to leave out the gory details, but at, at the end of the, the match, right, he's the only one left standing. There's lots of blood. It's really cool. It's, it's an awesome scene. But at the end of the scene, right, as all of these guys are laying around him, Maximus, he takes the sword and he throws it into this stunned audience, right? They all came there to see what they thought was his certain death. And then he stops and he looks around and he says, what? Are you not entertained? Right? It's one of the greatest lines in cinematic history. It's this thought-provoking question that draws us in. Well, this, in a little bit different way, is exactly what I believe we are meant to experience here in the book of Malachi. So we're going to actually hear over the course of the next seven weeks, seven different questions that are going to be asked. And these questions, they're meant to challenge us. Right? They're meant to convict us and ultimately they're meant to compel us to return to God. So here's the deal. I know that church is a place where people come to have their questions answered. And we're going to do some of that over the next several weeks. But honestly, my bigger prayer, my bigger hope is that you would wrestle with some of these questions that we find here in the book of Malachi. Because I believe when we wrestle with questions like the ones we are going to see, this is when the Lord reveals more of his truth 
and more of his love for us as his people. So let's actually come before him this morning with a word of prayer. Would you join me? Father, we give you praise this morning, Lord, for your faithfulness. Lord, you are so good. Even just hearing the testimonies of what happened at camp, Lord, you always show up. You are so faithful to us. Would you use this time here this morning as we gather together, Lord, would you remind us, would you reveal to us even more of your love for us? And would you receive all the glory, all the honor, all the praise? We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, if you have been at Awakened Church for a while, you know that we haven't spent a whole lot of time in the Minor Prophets, which is what Malachi is considered to be. But we're excited to begin this series because we believe there is such great truths in what these faithful men of the Lord have to tell us. And even though they're in the Old Testament, they still point us ahead to the good news of the gospel. They still point us to Jesus. And so that's going to be our final destination with each one of these messages. We're going to get back to Jesus. But I want to just give you a little bit of brief context here, help you understand why we chose this minor prophet, why we're even in this book, and help give you some context for the passage we're about to read. So, First, I want to start by talking about these minor prophets. If you haven't spent time in, in seminary or studying these minor prophets, you might be wondering, why are they called minor prophets? Well, it's not because they were less important, or it's not because they were smaller in stature. Actually, they're called minor prophets because simply of the lengths of their books. So back in those times, right, all of these were written on scrolls. And so you would have certain prophets, certain books, like Daniel and Isaiah and some of the ones you're familiar with, that were really long, and they would take up a whole scroll. But then you actually had 12 prophets who had some pretty short ones, right? This is four chapters, 55 verses or so, and they would all fit onto one scroll. So for efficiency's sake, they just put them all onto one scroll and became what we know today as the minor prophets. If you look at the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, you'll actually see they're all still together as one book. But in our Christian Old Testament, they're actually broken up into 12 different books. I think I've got a list of them you can see here on the screen behind me. But regardless of which category a prophet falls into, if they're a major prophet, if they're a minor prophet, their purpose, their goal is going to be the same. To reveal more of who God is, right? To reveal more of what his plan for us is, more of his love for us. And yes, there's oftentimes some correction there as well. We're going to see all of that here in the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can get those out and open them up to Malachi chapter 1. We're going to dive in in just a moment. If you have trouble finding that, just go to the New Testament and turn left. It is the last book in the Old Testament. It'll be right there, right next to Matthew. These are horrible pastor jokes, and I heard a laugh from Tammy, so thank you, Tammy. <laughs> Let me give you a little bit of context as you find your spot. We're going to start with Malachi himself. Now, the most important thing for you to know about Malachi is that, well, there's really nothing to know about Malachi. Actually, Malachi is the prophet we know least about in the Old Testament. All we know is that he was a messenger speaking on behalf of the Lord. That's what a prophet is, right? In fact, the name Malachi actually means my angel or my messenger. So a lot of theologians actually believe that this might not have actually been his name, uh, since it just means my messenger. It might have been a priest uh, who felt like he had such a convicting word from the Lord, but maybe feared for himself, and so he chose to use what we would refer to now as a pen name. And that actually speaks to the situational context that we find the people of Israel in. Right? Because their hearts had grown hardened towards God. They were distant from God. So this was really a volatile time for the people of Israel. And here's why. Let me give you a little bit of the background story. Where we find the Israelites, about 100 years after they have returned from their exile, 
and they're back in Jerusalem. And really, their expectations for what they thought they would experience really didn't match up with reality. See, they thought they were going to return to Jerusalem and that the Lord was going to restore them with, with power and with provision and with prosperity. But they came back and, and sure, the, the temple was rebuilt and, and the walls were rebuilt, but much of the power and the provision and the prosperity that they were expecting, that they were hoping for, was nowhere to be found. The reality is that the rest of their life was still in ruins. They were still waiting on the prophecies of God to be fulfilled. And so they had gotten to the point where they had honestly just stopped trying, right? This fire that was within them to obey the commandments of the Lord had just grown dim as the distance between them and God grew wider and wider, which is why God steps in to speak through his prophet Malachi. God steps in to speak these reassuring words of love while also challenging his people with words of correction. So that's a little bit of our background. That's a little bit of what we're going to experience over the next four chapters, over the 55 or so verses. And I want to encourage you, actually. This book takes like 10 minutes to read. Or if you do on the audio version, it's like seven or eight minutes. Spend time in this several times a week over the course of the next seven weeks. I promise you the Lord is going to bless you with that. Okay, that's enough for the setup. Let's jump into God's word, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says this, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And all God's people said, what? <laughs> I about y'all? I had to read this several times, you know, to begin to understand. If this is challenging to you or confusing, don't worry, you are not alone in this. The first few verses are honestly probably the most challenging in the entire book, so don't let them kind of draw you back a little bit, make you hesitant. That's not to draw you closer. I'm going to give you some helpful insight. It's going to help you understand how to break down and understand these passages. Let me start. I just want to give you a, a high-level view of the pattern that Malachi uses, a little bit of a roadmap, if you will, to help you understand how the prophet Malachi, how God is speaking through the prophet Malachi, right? He actually uses this pattern, actually begins with a declaration, right? We see that really clearly here. It says, I have loved you, right? Says the Lord. That's the declaration, right? And that's followed by a doubtful response, right? How have you loved us is the question that's asked in return. And then God responds with a demonstration, right? He's proving what he's already declared. We see that here as he demonstrates that he has already chosen the people of Israel, so it's declaration followed by doubt, followed by demonstration, right? As you spend time in the word this week, I'd encourage you, use that filter, those three Ds. It's going to help you understand this book a whole lot better. We're going to break that down here this morning, starting with the declaration. God says, I have loved you. That's the declaration. I have loved you. I love that God leads with love. And there is plenty of correction that's coming down the road. Trust me, next week, there's going to be a whole lot of correction we are going to work our way through. But God begins by laying a foundation of love. Why? Because God is love, 
right? That's what 1 John 4, 8 says to us. God is love. It is his essence. It is who he is. And there's a reason why he lays this as the foundation. Because it's not just who he is, but it's what he does. Right? Love is the driving force behind everything God does. Behind even his, his wrath, even his anger. Everything is filtered through. Everything is fueled by God's love. But there's just one problem, right? The problem is that outside of faith, that's impossible for us to comprehend. Right? We can't fathom that kind of love. So what we choose to do instead is we choose to measure God's love by things that are tangible to us, right? We measure by things that are tangible to us. So we, we base our view of our eternal God and his everlasting love based off solely our present circumstances. A little bit short-sighted, don't you think? It's a little bit short-sighted, but that's the trap we so easily fall into. That's what the Israelites have fallen into here. I mean, they weren't exactly living their best lives back in Jerusalem. They thought this was going to be the dawning of a new day, right? That the Messiah was coming right here in this moment. Everything was going to change, but things hadn't gotten any better for them. And since God didn't live up to their expectations, the assumption was that he either didn't love them like they thought he did, or that he wasn't who they thought he was. We can fall into that same trap when we measure God's love with the wrong measuring sticks. I see, God's love isn't communicated to us through our present circumstances. I mean, if that was the case, then, man, you could argue that God hated the apostles, that he hated even his own son. But God's love isn't communicated through our present circumstances. And it's also not measured by our answered prayer requests either. Right? That's the other trap I think we can fall into. And I've honestly gained a whole new perspective on this since becoming a dad. I don't know how many of you parents can relate to this, but kids will ask for anything. At any time, right? Any, any parents out there? Like, my kids, they'll ask for ice cream for breakfast. They'll ask to go swimming in the middle of a thunderstorm. And trust me, like, I want to be that fun dad. But the reality is, to be a good father, a good dad, sometimes I've got to say no. Sometimes I've got to say no. Well, the same holds true for our Heavenly Father. Right? His love can't be measured by how often he grants us the things we ask of him. In fact, we often come to find out, as many of you country fans have heard, right, the great Garth Brooks line, that some of God's greatest gifts are what? Unanswered prayers. I thought about singing that for you guys, but I'll leave that to, to Pastor Josiah. So listen, the next time you are tempted in your flesh to, to measure God's love by your present circumstances or by whether or not God's answered your prayer requests, you need to realize that, that that's not how God communicates his love to us. It's not even how we communicate our love to each other. I mean, think about this with your spouse. Do you, do, do you gauge your love, the love you feel from your spouse by, by how often they do things for you? No, it's by how much of themselves they reveal to you, how much they sacrifice for you. It's the same thing with God. He communicates his love through his presence. He communicates his love by how much he gives to us. When we measure his love this way, we'll come to realize that he is exactly who he says he is. Unfortunately, for the people of Israel, right, their hearts are hardened towards this, which is why they respond with doubt, saying, how have you loved us? It's that second point in that pattern here, right, the doubtful response. They say, how have you loved us? And I know we can't really read tone into this, right? It's like same thing with text messages. You can't really read the tone, so let me add it here for you, right? This is not a, a sincere question. This is a, 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 a sarcastic denial of the love that God has declared, right? So it's not 
how have you loved us? Right? It's how have you loved us? Right? Do you see the difference there? They're coming at it with this like gladiator type energy. There is some anger, some, some resentment behind this response. Because what ultimately happened is that the, the enemy used this disconnect between their expectations and reality to sow seeds of doubt. It's the same evil plan he's been doing since all the way back in the beginning. All the way back with Adam and Eve in the garden. What does he do? He leverages the power of a question to sow seeds of doubt in their minds by asking them, did God really say that? Would a loving God really withhold good things from those that he loves? And we all know what happens, right? He sows these seeds of doubt, which quickly grow into unbelief, into idolatry, into sin. Well, family, we need to realize, we need to come to understand that Satan still operates this way today. He's not concerned with getting us to think more of him. All he needs us to do is think less of God, and he's won the battle. Right? So when money gets tight, he sows seeds of doubt about whether God will really provide. Right? Or in seasons of hardship or loneliness, all he has to do is, is question, hey, is God really listening? Does God really care? He comes to us in these moments of weakness, and he leverages the power of a question to cause confusion and chaos in our hearts. And that confusion and chaos is meant to undermine the goodness and the grace and the love of God. Man, it's what he's always done, and it's what he will always do. Now, that's the truth. Now, how do we make the spiritual practical? I want to I expose what I think is one of Satan's greatest tools that he uses against us. You guys ready for this? A little pastoral insight for you. Satan's greatest tool is not sex, it's not money, and it's not power. It is a simple two-letter word. If. If. Those two letters, well, they have the ability to stoke our imagination, don't they? They can even lead us to, to great inspiration. But when they are in the hands of the enemy, those two letters are only wielded for temptation. Think about the times in your own life, right, when you've been at a low point and you've either thought or you've even said these words, God, if you really loved me, God, if you really knew me, God, if you were really for me, these two, letter, two little letters, they sow seeds of doubt into our hearts. And they put separation between us and God. This one little word is Satan's best way of turning the truth we know in our hearts into doubt. I need you to understand this, family. It is his greatest tool to use against us. And do you want to know how I know this? It's because he even tries this against Jesus. Think about this for a second. Jesus knew with absolute certainty that he was the son of God. And in Matthew chapter 3, we see this beautifully, right? At his baptism. The this, this, this Spirit descends on him like a dove, and, and the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son. And what happens in the very next chapter? Jesus goes into the wilderness, and what tool does Satan use against him? That same two-letter word. Check this out, Matthew 4.3. The tempter comes and says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse 5, the devil takes Jesus to the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And the third time in verse 9, the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What I want you to see is that Satan tempts Jesus the same way he tempts you and he tempts me. By leading us to doubt the things we know 
to be true. It's what he's always done. It's what he always will do. Well, I believe this is a word for all of us here this morning. I believe this word is specifically for each of you here this morning, our students. You're three days, two days back from camp, and the enemy wants you to doubt the things that you heard. The enemy wants you to doubt the things that you experienced. Some of that may have already happened. But the truth is, the same God who met you down at Camp Zephyr, he can meet you here today. He can meet you tomorrow. He can meet you every single day because he is always available to you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The enemy may want you to believe otherwise. But that love, that presence you felt down at camp, it is not conditional. It is not circumstantial. It is unconditional. It is eternal and it is guaranteed to those of you who are in Christ. If you want to know how you can face that temptation, Jesus gives you the roadmap. Do you know how Jesus responds to, to those, those two-letter words? When Satan tries to, to, to sow seeds of doubt into their mind, Jesus comes back to them with what? With, with God's word. He ignores that word from Satan and he responds with the word of God. So if you want to combat that doubt that the enemy is trying to sow into your minds, man, pour into God's word. Let those words take root in your heart. You'll be able to respond to doubt with truth. Listen, we've heard the Lord make his declaration of love for his people. We've heard their doubt-filled response, but God isn't going to leave them there. He never leaves us there because he demonstrates his love for us. Like the good and gracious father he is, he doesn't just leave us to, to our own minds. He says, I'm going to put this on display for you. And he does that here by reminding the Israelites that they have been chosen. Look with me again, Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. After the people say, how have you loved us? The Lord responds by saying, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now, just in case you're not familiar with the Old Testament, let me just give you just a really brief summary of what he's talking about here. Because this question uh, from, from God, it's not a rhetorical question. Esau and Jacob, they are indeed brothers. In fact, they were twins. And in those times, the, the older son was the one that received the blessing. It was always the younger son that would serve the older. But before these boys were even born, the Lord comes to their mother, Rebekah, and says that the older will serve the younger. God was reversing the order before they were born. So before these boys could do any good, before they could do any bad, God chose the younger twin. He chose Jacob to be the father of his chosen people. So God demonstrated his love for his people by reminding them of the way in which they were chosen. That it had nothing to do with them, it had everything to do with him. Y'all with me so far? Okay. But I'm guessing, right, if you heard this earlier on or even just now, you're wondering, probably a couple of questions, right? Uh, does God really hate people? And, 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 and why would he choose some and not others? Now, these are hard questions to ask. And to give you a full answer would take a lot longer than I have right now, but I'm not going to avoid these topics because honestly, these are two things that are really major hindrances for people in coming to Christ and in coming to know the Lord. So we're going to do our best in the short time we have to answer these, starting with this concept of hate. Now, I know that, that the word hate has become a four-letter word in our society, and there's a, there's a good reason for that. 
And so I get why they, this would set off alarms in your mind, right? When you hear this word like, wait, God, God hates? But I want you to look at the context of Scripture. Because what we'll see is that God isn't using this word to describe like a, a human passion of hate. What he's using this to describe is, is a contrast in his priorities. In other words, God's not communicating contempt towards Esau. Right? He's not communicating like uh, abandonment of him. Scripture actually tells us that Esau was a blessed man. What God's doing is he's using this dramatic language to say that by comparison to how much he loves Jacob, it looks like hate to Esau. Y'all with me so far? Jesus, Luke 14, 26. Some of you have heard this before. He says, he who does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. He who does not hate all of that, such a person cannot be my disciple. Well, now, Jesus isn't saying that you have to go and hate your family for no reason. That's not the expectation. Only that we should love him so much that it looks like hate, everything else. Right? I'll give you a more like modern day example. If you guys watch romantic comedies, this is when the guy comes to, to the girl and says, I don't care about anyone. I don't care about anything else. All I want is you. <laughs> of course he cares about other things, right? Cared about that other girl just a minute ago, but... <laughs> Sorry, getting off topic. Okay. The point is, this is a figure of speech, right? It's meant to communicate the depths of one's love, which is exactly what God is doing here for his people. So that addresses the, the, some of the challenges around that word hate. But what about the idea that, that God has chosen some people and some are left on the outside looking in? Again, we live in a politically correct society, right? Which means that our, our brains have been wired to hear a message like this, a message that's meant to communicate God's unique and special and saving love for his people. And our minds immediately notice that somebody is being left out. We notice immediately, we think, well, this, this can't be right. right. Don't we all get a trophy? Isn't this how this thing is supposed to work? See, our politically correct society wants us to believe that everyone is good and that everybody deserves heaven. But a biblically correct perspective says that actually, no, none of us are good. That everybody actually deserves hell, but that some of us get grace. And if you think this is offensive, well, I'm sorry, but it, it is. You know, Christians today will try to hide the offensive parts of the gospel because they don't want to upset people, right? They don't want people to feel left out. They don't want people to feel uncomfortable. But to hide this truth is actually to neglect the good news of the gospel. See, the irony is that in the long run, the most offensive thing you could do is to withhold this truth from somebody and let them go on thinking that they're living their lives that they can earn their own way into heaven. That is the most offensive thing that we can do. While none of us may have the answer on who God has chosen and, and when he chose them, we shouldn't let that distract us from the most important truth here, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we have been saved. See, this whole thing is called the doctrine of election, and uh, you know, if you've been in Bible classes, you know there's tons of debate around this. But I don't really care about the answer to that, because all I know is what the great revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards once said, that I contribute nothing to my own salvation except the sin that made it necessary. What God is telling his people as he demonstrates his love is that his grace is not contingent on our performance of him but on his pursuit 
of us. Do you see the heart of God in this family? Do you see his mercy? I love this quote from the great C.S. Lewis. He said, what a mercy it is that it is not your hold of Christ that saves you, but his hold of you. And in this grace, in this mercy, we can find a security that unlocks everything for us. God knows that, and that's why he says with confidence in verse 5, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So as I invite the band back up now, I want to just ask you a question. When you hear the words of the Lord spoken through the prophet Malachi, when they reach through the text, kind of like that, that movie question reaches through the screen, when you hear the words of the Lord saying, I have loved you, do you find security in that? Do you find peace in that? Or are you still struggling to believe that it's true? Can you trust those words from the Lord or do they still lead you to doubt? See, your belief, your security in this, it makes all the difference, family. We actually see a reflection of this in parents and in children. Y'all know we're coming off of this family series, and one of the studies I didn't get to share with you actually connects so well to this here that I wanted to share it this morning. It actually comes out of the, the UK where they did a study to, to try to discern, hey, what's the difference between kids who are successful and kids who aren't? It was really interesting because they found the number one factor in the success of the kids who, they, who participated in this study was simply the security they had and the love of their parents. The results were stunning. It proved kids who were secure in the love of their parents they were more likely to have higher self-esteem, half as likely to get sick. On average, they were smarter, they were more social, they were less likely to develop depression or to abuse substances. Why? Because they didn't have to go searching for what they already had. Love. The love of their parents. They were secure and confident in what they had received. And the same can, the same should be true of us when it comes to the love that the Father has given us. And some of you here, you have that confidence. You have that security. Praise God for that. And share that with others. But I know that others of you here this morning are struggling. You're still struggling to believe that's true. Maybe you're struggling to believe God loves you because you can't even love yourself. You've been stuck in this cycle of self-condemnation for so long that you can't even hear God's voice over your own. God is saying, I loved you. I have always loved you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling to believe that God loves you because you were, you were fed some bad theology. You were conditioned to believe that God's love hinges on your performance or that it's only revealed through material things. And so you're sitting here with a bad report card and empty pockets and you're wondering if you can believe this to be true. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling to, to believe and to receive God's love because there's ongoing sin in your life that you can't get rid of. Ongoing sin that you're struggling to let go of and that has caused a separation between you and God. Well, let me tell you, family, whether it's your voice, whether it's the voice of others, or whether it's the voice of the enemy. It's time to tune your ear to the words of your father, to receive his declaration over your life when he says, I have loved you. I've loved you. 
I was reflecting on that beautiful truth this week, the Lord kept bringing me back time and time again to the words of another one of his prophets. I want to share this with you before I close. It comes out of Isaiah 54, verse 10. It says, For the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. My covenant of blessing will never be broken, says the Lord who has mercy on you. What this means, family, is that nothing can ever get in the way of God's love for you. There is nothing you can do that will make him love you any less. His faithful love remains through everything, through your sin, through your doubt, through your anger, through your resentment. Nothing can ever get in the way of his love for you. And here's why you can be sure of this. Because he communicated that love through his presence, by sending his son. By sending his son to lay down his own life for you. You can search the whole world and you will never find another God like that. See, in the end, family, it's Jesus who Malachi is going to point us to because it's Jesus who puts on full display God's love for us. And I believe it's Jesus we must turn our hearts to this morning. So with every head bowed and with every eye closed. I want to speak to those of you in the room who are still struggling to believe that God really loves you. Now, I can't pretend to know what it is you're going through or what it is maybe you have been through in your life, but what I do know is that Jesus knows it because Jesus has endured it. There is nobody else who has ever walked this earth who has given up more, who has been persecuted more than Jesus. And he did this all to communicate one thing. He loves you. So rather than looking at your, your present circumstances or the opinion of others, would you look to the cross? Because when you look to the cross, you will see with absolute certainty the height, the depth, the width of his love for you. God's people said, how have you loved us? And God gave his answer by sending his son to demonstrate it for us. The question is, how will you respond? I want to invite you to turn to him this morning and to confess of the ways in which you have turned your back on him and to commit or to recommit living your life in pursuit of him. If that's you this morning, if you're ready to receive the grace that God has made available to you through the gift of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, I want to invite you just to raise your hand right where you're at this morning. I see you in the back. If you're ready to silence the voice of others, silence your own voice and to tune your ear to God's voice, to receive that truth, to receive his love this morning, go ahead and just raise your hand right where you're at so we can know to pray over you. Praise God, I see you. Father, there are no words. There are just no words to describe how much we love you. But I guess that makes sense because there's no words to describe how much you love us. I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters who raised their hand that this would be a moment, a moment in, the, in their own lives, Lord, that they will look back on and remember this is the moment where I turned back to you where I gave my life 
to you. And I live the rest of my life in pursuit of you. Lord, we are so undeserving of your love. But we praise you and we thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.